Welcome to the Weekend Sports Cars podcast, uh, brought to you as always by Cooper Tyres, by the Justice Brothers and by TorontoMotorsports.com. And you'll gather, it's not the usual voice starting this show. Uh, I'm Graham Goodwin uh, in the UK. Marshall Pruitt, otherwise engaged with back-to-back IndyCar uh, races over the last couple of weekends. And uh, if you've been reading his musings on Racer.com, you'll know there's been what a, he would term a heck of a bunch of news in the car. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at you, Alex Pennell. Um So, there's no easy way of saying this. We've got a different co-host this weekend. And he's even further away than Marshall Pruitt is from me. Um, we've looked into the Rolodex of fame uh, that we have here at uh, the Weekend Sports Cars, the Daily Sports Car. And the name that's come up, mainly because I flicked all the way to the end and the Zs, is my friend and colleague from Australia, uh, Delhi Sports Cars Australian correspondent. Um, one of the men behind a really successful and positive online community on Reddit and on uh, Discord around sports car racing and you know with a particular focus on WEC, but frankly, just about everything. Michael Salavari, welcome to the Weekend Sports Cars. It's a pleasure to be here, Graham. Thank you very much for having me on uh, for the week. Uh, hopefully I can fill the, the space that Marshall is is left for, for someone to fill, I guess. Well, well, Marshall will tell you that's a lot of space. There <laughs> you go. Uh, delightful to have you. But what we're going to do to start with is just because it's been a fast moving news agenda this week. And Michael's role is generally going to be the Aussie bowler towards my bat which we know the way that ends and it's never good for australia um oh. but oh yeah shots fired uh we're gonna go a, a bit of a canter through the week's news what's kind of caught your eye on the news agenda this week michael well the first thing that i really uh saw was the two new gt cars uh that mm. have been released this week the first one of course being the ferrari 296 uh, and then a day later, Porsche released their new 911 offering uh, for for GT3 regulations. So very exciting times in GT3 at the moment, Graham. It is the first uh, Porsche 911 on the 911 GT3 car, rather, on their new 992 platform. We've already seen the 911 GT3 cut based on that platform and a very handsome beast that is. Um, yeah, it, it's... It's another interesting endorsement, isn't it, of this GT3 platform that is about to succeed globally, already has uh, taken over the old GTLM uh, class in the IMSA Weathers Tech Sports Car Championship. We've got one more year, but no pro cars in the FIWC and the European Le Mans series. Uh, and I was looking at the, uh, I'll refer to more to this as we move forward, I'm sure, the always enlightening press conference at the Spa 24 Hours conducted by uh, Stefan Mattel. And I think the figure he fielded was 305 GT3 cars in competition globally last year. Wow. Uh, this year, or rather this year, um, which is, if you take that into account in terms of the, the global significance of that platform against what's going on in GTE, albeit with IMSA now no longer being in that kind of marketplace. What that basically means is there are 90% more GT3 cars racing than there are GTE cars. Because if my numbers are right, it's about 32 or 33 GTE cars that have raced at least once somewhere uh, this this season. 
so the time is right. The time is right to make that change. I know the the switch away from a pro GT class in WEC has been highly controversial uh, with a number of people, not least Corvette Racing. We will wait and see how that one pans out uh, in the next year, two years, five years. Who's to say that we won't see that reemerge as the marketplace for hypercar, LMTH, LMH, GTP settles in. But it is great to see that, to be blunt, the two biggest names in sports car racing, Ferrari and Porsche, investing in new platforms. The 296, Handsome Beast. It's an odd thing with that 296. When we saw the first renders of it, we saw the first car, Michael. That thing looks so different from the 488. But the more I see it, the more similarities I actually am finding with that platform. I need to see it in the carbon. And, and as yeah. you've gathered, I'm not at Spa this week. Uh, the reasons behind that, that I hope will become clearer in the coming uh, weeks and months. There's there's an awful lot going on at the moment. And uh, my focus is it's not elsewhere this weekend, but it's elsewhere for a number of other reasons. Not all of them professional. Um, but I... I absolutely want to see that car in the carbon as soon as possible. But what do you think? You've seen the, uh, they're not renders, but the pictures of the cars uh, on the internet so far. What's the reaction? So I, I quite like the look of it to start with. Uh, I can certainly see what you mean about it looking more like a 488 as time goes on, especially the sort of overhead looking shot of the front end. That looks very 488 and even 458. It's a nice sort of design profile that's come through there but the rear end of the car looks super wild I, I can't get my head around what's what's going on there it almost feels uh like a mid noughties boutique gt3 car at the back you know something that like an ascari or a noble would would put together it, it looks absolutely wild and i know that they've got the 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 car actually in person at spa at the moment i've seen a few filters uh, sorry, a few photos filter through from uh, some of our uh, Discord users at the track, and it, it's a it's a beautiful looking thing. And Ferrari always have a, a perchance for beauty, don't they, with their with their well, uh, racing offerings? Uh, yeah, and I think you know that what we we know already, no shortage of interest and orders for that car. The same will be true of Porsche. Um, generally speaking, Ferrari GT3s sell in their dozens and dozens and dozens. I don't have a number for the overall numbers for the 488, but I'm sure that will filter out um, sooner rather than later. Uh, excuse me while my wife tries to call me because she's not realised I'm down here. That will be, I'm taking the dog for a walk. <laughs> the, the dog indeed will be going for a walk. Um, it does look a stunner. And I think once we start to get some livery attached to that car it's going to be even more stunning again that's the the next phase if you like isn't it it's some of these cars can be very color sensitive some of these cars can be very livery sensitive we we know because we've spoken to a number of the existing customers uh not least chetela racing who uh, i think told us at sebring that they are slated to get the very first customer car for their what will be a full imsa program uh the coming year and you know it looks like multiple 296 GT3s for what is set to be the competitive debut of that car, the Rolex 24 Hours. We are going to see the new Porsche in some development races this year. 
and generally speaking that tends to focus around the Nürburgring but it may well be that we see the car elsewhere as well as an invitational entry but that's good news we've got obviously the BMW M4 GT3 in its first full uh, season in customer hands there's evolutions coming of other cars um I think life is good on that front. I know we've got some questions about that. Should we take, should we take those questions now about the, uh, the, the the state of GT3? It is fascinating. And as we were saying on the WC broadcast uh, from Monza, and we commented briefly on this um, at uh, in last week's show, three years of seismic change coming in international sports car racing. We've already got, a hypercar class, but that is basically the foundation for what is coming. We, we regularly call this a tsunami of uh, new metal uh, coming in for next year. So that is next year. In 2024, uh, we've got the change coming for the GT classes. Um, and then in 2025, against the current timetable, the new breed of the other most important class in international sports car racing, LMP2. That's quite a stunning three years. It, it's it's both mouth-watering and mildly depressing in terms of the workload it's going to be <laughs> if you're involved in the news market. But the great thing about it at the moment is, at the moment, at a time when, boy, do we need some good news in life, there's a hell of a lot of good news. So, um, GT3, what are our what are our listeners uh, keen to find out and keen to know? Uh, so, uh, there's a few questions we've got here uh, about uh, GT3's involvement in the WEC and at Le Mans. Um, yep. Thomas Thomas Smets and Stuart Hart have asked uh, questions that at uh, that's at Jag Lamont for Stuart Hart. Um, the idea, looking at um, GT2 regulation for the WC, where Stefan Rattel commented that he likes the idea of the extra body kit and the idea of mm-hmm. GT3 premium. Um, yep. And Stuart's question asks, uh, what do we think about Mercedes' place in the WEC and in GT3 at Le Mans? I think the answer on, uh, and obviously the reason for asking about Mercedes is that, you know, since... Um, Peter Dunbreck so carelessly threw the car into the forest. Uh, that there has been this this question about whether or not Mercedes would ever come back to top line uh, sports car racing. Well, here's the thing: uh, Marshall would want me to reference the fact that we had a bit of shenanigans about Mercedes AMG and DPI in the early days, where Mercedes AMG um, uh, were pretty rude about a story that Marshall wrote. Uh, that they were offering an option for some kind of customer package for DPI. Um, that uh, basically saying that the story is nonsense. Nonsense, it was nonsense. It was absolutely true. Or if it wasn't true, it certainly seems rather strange that a very prominent member of their um, their team um, had conversations with very prominent members of some very prominent teams. And by the way, those meetings weren't asked for by the teams. They were asked for by Mercedes-AMG. So it's not a surprise that they are taking a look. Will we see them in a top class? No real sign of it. But then again, they are heavily invested in Formula One. Uh, Never say never, I think, is the answer there. On the GT3 front, that's a completely different kettle of fish. And that's going to come down to whether or not 
their customers want to go there and what sway they've then got with the customer racing side of Mercedes-AMG on the investment that's going to be required into whatever GT3 premium turns out to be. Um, and that's the other point here is we don't really know what GT3 premium is yet. Um, but, you know, we know the broad brush. I think Richard Mille has been quoted by saying it's between 50 and 100,000 euros per car. Yeah, that doesn't buy you a lot. Um, does, does GT3 premium, is that going to stick, do you think? Oh, well, I think I think they, they are pretty well um, wedded to the fact that they want some separation. It, it, look, the GT3 car, GTE cars already do have uh, a pretty subtle aero kit for Le Mans. It's no, it's no immediate um, surprise that they would be doing that. For me, I think if you're going to do it, go the full hog and make sure what you've got as part of that kit is some form of, um, whether it's Lumi Rank or something like that, that now is the time. Now is the time to make it as easy as possible for people to follow. And the WEC and Le Mans is a bit of an outlier in that, in not really helping very much uh, for people sure. coming to the sport. And let's face it, here's the time right now to start thinking about those things. What can we do to make this more accessible and easy to understand? If that kit had some aspect of that, then I think... Uh, there'd be a lot more positivity towards what at the moment feels like difference for difference's sake. It's not been explained. I'm not even going to say it's been well explained, not well explained. It's not been explained. So it makes it difficult to comment on it. But I am nervous about anything that adds cost to the sport right now. And yes, I'm looking at you and taking the British GT Championship to Portimao. Um, I'll catch up with the teams, but I can't believe that's going to put smiles on faces. It's a fabulous track. We'll love going there. Uh, I think they'll love it a little bit less with a day and a half and a very typical bow and a day trucking it down from there or three days trucking down through Europe. It is the only place in Europe, by the way, that Daily Sports Car has not driven to um, since we came back racing in 2020 and we, we switched from flying to driving. Um, wow. But it, because it's just too far, it's it's yeah. more than a day's driving. Um, we even with two drivers, it's it's just too far. And at the moment, cough cough fuel costs. Um, that just doesn't seem like a very smart move. That that said, what else have we got yeah. on there? But so Mercedes, I think they'll be driven by customers, and I absolutely certain there are going to be customers who are very keen to take their MG GT3s to the mall. Uh, brilliant. Um, we've got a question from Gary Batten. Uh, with the use of GT3 in Le Mans and the WC, will that see an increase in non-German manufacturers uh, trying to race somewhere like the Nürburgring and in the, in the NLS or at the Nürburgring 24? Well, the, 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 for the most part, I think the cars we're going to see in the WC are going to be full season entrants elsewhere, whether or not it's uh, WC, ELMS, IMSA, we hope, uh, too. But the beauty of any global formula, and GT3 has been a spectacularly successful global formula, is that you can pick and choose. Um, what it really comes down to is, is there support from those manufacturers to take on the mighty wall of Teutonic efficiency that are 
the kind of big four in Germany. And we've had Aston Martin have a crack at it a few times. We've had Bentley have a crack at it. We've had McLaren have a bit of a crack at it. We've got Ferrari involvement at a reasonably high level as well. And we've had obviously customer cars from Lamborghini. Look, I I love the Nürburgring 24 hours. It's one of my favorite races. It's bonkers, but it's one of my favorite races. And I would absolutely love to see a credible concerted effort from whether or not it's a big private team or from a, a non-German manufacturer to go and take the fight to them. Um, but do I think this is the doorway to it? No, I don't. Um, I think it stands alone as one of the great endurance races. Uh, it is seen by an awful lot of people as being a very German race. Uh, you know, the, the biggest national race in the world, if you like. But there's no doubt in my mind that there is an attraction from a number of people, a number of manufacturers uh, to take on that challenge. I'd love to see Glickenhaus have a crack at it with a proper customer. They've come very close quietly to some surprising teams taking on their cars, and particularly the new 004. And I don't think that's yet a story that's run its course. Uh, there's zero doubt in my mind that Jim Glickenhaus and, and co will be looking to get that car homologated to GT3. And I think they have every intention that they or others will take that car to Le Mans as well. And maybe that is where the next big minnow story comes from. Uh, because here's the thing. Everybody at Nürburgring has a huge amount of respect for what they've done. And um, I think that's only an encouragement to do more. Uh, and I'm sure Jim's got a pretty packed Rolodex of you know, NLS teams and potential NLS teams that might want to go and take it on with something a bit different because we all do love a bit different, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, wasn't it only four or five years ago that the Glickenhaus uh, took pole at the Nordschleife in for it, the 24? In fact, the, the very year that Jim donated the trophy, uh, the, Jim, <laughs> there you go. the Jim Glickenhaus trophy's first winner was Jim Glickenhaus, <laughs> <laughs> which is, is lovely. And it was great to be there and watch that. Um, but it, it's a, a sidebar question then, Graeme. Sorry to yeah. interrupt your thought. Um, if that uh, Glickenhaus becomes GT3 homologated, could we see a team Glickenhaus in GT3 premium at Le Mans? 100%. And that be look, I mean, on the record, he's told me he wants to do it. You know, it, it, there's been an active conversation about that. And I think that's been one of the, um, the factors that have been put on the table when Jim has talked to the ACO, LBM, about where he'd like to be next year in hypercar. He's made it pretty clear he can't really afford to do a full expanded season in the WEC, but he's also made it clear that he would like to work with them about a longer term plan that includes part season hypercar and coming in GT3 as soon as he's able to with that car. And to me, when we get into this debate, and I know there's questions later about the, um, in parentheses, fan wall, uh, that when we talk about smaller makes and, and privateer teams, etc., that's a thing that probably needs to change with the WEC, is quite correctly they're focused on full-season entries, but we've got a lot of full-season entries coming with very high-level manufacturers and privateer teams. But there is value as well in attracting those smaller makes, those dreamers, if you like, and... There, I think there needs to be a sensible 
attitude taken by the FIA and by uh, the ACO into what is going to be feasible for manufacturers that might end up being fairly significant in other areas of their bailiwick. And for that, I do think there needs to be a common sense attitude to the rule that says you can only have a hypercar uh, for a full season. I'd like to see those teams committing to multiple rounds. I certainly don't want to see, you know, Glickenhouse coming for Spa and Le Mans and that's it. I'd like to see them committing um, to multiple rounds and whether or not it's 50% of a season, whatever it is, and whether or not that is that you're committing and committing to multiple uh, part seasons. But I just want to see a grown-up attitude taken towards it that is not driven by, blindly by regulation, that's driven by common sense and then a little bit of not common sense which is what do you want to see when you go to a racetrack we all want to see the big factory teams but hands up if you never cheered for panos yeah it's that kind of thing it's it's hands up if you never cheered for Henri pescarolo and and it's that kind of thing that i think they need to make sure they've got an eye towards for the the longer term future because some of those factories will not be around in three or four years' time. And at that point, there's two choices. Either they've sold cars for private use or they're gone. And we should never forget, never forget who was there when we had three cars or four cars in the top class. Who was there in the top class in those supporting classes? That's where I want to start to hear some positive forward-thinking thought from our friends at the ACO and LMEM, because those people, that passion, those programmes are a cornerstone of what draws the likes of you and your friends and, you know, and, you know, uh, uh, and bobble hats around the world, Hmm. you know, and certainly drew me there. It's, it's that, that's what I want to hear moving forward is what's the plan beyond the multi-million euro shiny uh, makes because if we can learn the lessons of history, the reality is three, four, five years down the line, you better have a plan. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that transitions pretty well into a few questions that we've got from uh, people asking about hypercar, LMDH, GTP, Mm. and all all those sort of things that are are happening in the next few years. I know there's one thing we didn't get a question on, which surprised me, and it surprised me for a particular reason, and that is what has been one of the standout stories, um, one of the standout stories for the the year so far, which is BMW announcing they're going to be adding a yes. WC program to the uh, to their LMDH uh, slash GTP slash hypercar program for 2024. And that story's just taken off. And I think that's a marker, Michael, of two things. One is it's clearly a popular brand. It's got its own fan base. But it's a growing audience for this part of the sport as a whole. And uh, what do I mean by it's taken off? In terms of the readers we've got around that story, it's at a level of the Ferrari hypercar. being Yeah, wow which is extraordinary. And what we're seeing is an escalation of that, um, that scale of, of interest. And 
you know, including, by the way, in the questions we're getting to the weekend sports cars, which is we're seeing new names and we, we're seeing people. I'm sure you're seeing this across the platforms that you're uh, looking after and, and, and monitor. There are people coming and asking questions about, can somebody explain to me about um, sports car racing? I'm really interested yeah. in it. I think that car's cool. What goes on here? So uh, I think the answer here is this is beginning to gather proper momentum and we can we're already excited we can trust ourselves i think to get even more excited now that the numbers that are coming forward not just for the really big races but for season long entries are looking very impressive indeed i read a story that that seemed to capture people's imagination which effectively said we've now got double figures of entries for both the major championships full season entries into double figures confirmed for 2023 whether or not everybody at the first race that's a debate for another day but full season entries confirmed into double figures and as far as the wec is concerned with bmw coming with what we know is happening with alpine and with lamborghini and with the potential for more customer cars coming for porsche in year two again we're knocking on the door of 20 which is yeah well extraordinary absolutely extraordinary you know are we at 20 no we're not uh, could it be 20 yes it could do we know what other people are doing with customer versions of other cars no we don't but everything that's coming forward at the moment is good news um there's going to be some stumbles there's some concerns at the moment about supply chain and about who gets what and where and when so we're just going to have to kind of you know calm our jets a little bit but um I think we keep talking about golden era. My God, this one's looking shiny and golden. It's a bit terrifying. I mean, we, I, <laughs> my first experience with a golden era, so to speak, was the LMP1 hybrid era, which was 2014 to 2016, 17, mm -hmm. which had what three manufacturers yep. and a race from Nissan. Uh, this is this is remarkable. The the level of interest that has been generated through GTP and through hypercar, and I'm trying to find that we had a good question um that came in uh and i'm trying to find uh someone uh someone this moment of time uh said what's not happening in endurance racing right <laughs> now uh is, is this level of activity and interest likely to draw in other brands as well 100 percent. i mean look i mean there are numerous brands talking to numerous parties whether or not that's industrial parties whether or not that is uh race organizers etc you know, look, what have we not got revealed yet that's out there and being discussed? I've written twice now about Isato Fraschini. It's real. You know, what's going to happen with that? I don't know, but yeah. I know it's real. Um, we, uh, the, the ticker tape of news that comes out of the mouth of Zach Brown continues to uh, refer to McLaren coming. Um, exactly. Do I think that's real? <laughs> Yes, I think it's real. I think they've got real interest in doing this. Is there a program? No, there's not yet. Um, beyond that, because I know people think what I've said about other brands coming, um, there is at least one more that is a real prospect. And in answer to another question, by the way, and again, I can't remember who this was, so apologies if I'm not name checking you. Might that be later than 24? Yes, it might. This is a five-year homologation um, five year regulation cycle. And I think that cycle, by the way, could be extended. 
and develop maybe to be longer than that uh, that period of time. Um, yes, I think there will. That's, by the way, without the other prospect that is still out there and was again underlined by Jean Martino at Stellantis and Peugeot, that that platform might find its way into use for other brands for the Stellantis uh, yeah. empire. And, you know, and what what kind of brands does Stellantis have? Well, I don't think it's a Maserati because I think they've now shown their hands, by the way, with a new GT2 car. And we shouldn't forget that. That's spectacular news for that brand and for the GT2 platform. Um, but they've got Alfa Romeo. They've got yeah. Dodge. They've got other. Are we going to see a Ram LMH? No, we're not. But, you know, but you know, there's there's all sorts of things that you might see. It just needs those brands to see the value. And the, the best way of them finding that value is for 2023 to go spectacularly well. If 2023 goes well, I think you're going to find the phones light up again. I think you're going to find that there's going to be other people interested in investing in those platforms. So to my certain knowledge, OK, it's sort of Rashini, car in build, yet to be revealed what on earth is going on there. It's a fascinating one. Um, McLaren, public confirmation that uh, whatever else is happening with IndyCar and with Formula E, there is still uh, every prospect they can get involved there. What they need is a programme green lit, which effectively means they're looking for commercial backing for that programme. And at least one more brand that everybody listening to this podcast will be familiar with. At least one more. Wow. Um, that hasn't and, been revealed at all yet. Uh, it's been spoken about in the past, but um, that is absolutely out there with real conversations right now uh, with what is, I think, quite a fascinating programme and prospect that again opens another door uh, in terms of the options that move forward. So, and by the way, that's that's without me kind of dig digging deeper into my memory banks and calling up a variety of people that have come forward with bonkers ideas in the past. You know, I mean, we, we, we could sit here all day and talk about what about this brand? What about that brand? What about the other brand? And there will be, at some point in the future, there will be an opportunity to talk about some of the brands that, that, that we've had conversations with that have expressed interest that have either had uh, correspondence or telephone calls or even meetings uh, to discuss the rule set that have never gone further than that. And there are a lot of them. You know, is there going to be a Geely? No. Is there going to be a Tata based um, brand? No, they're gone. They but they, they were interested. They were certainly part of um, a succession of conversations, but there are more than that that are out there. And remember, the real key here, and it's where there's been all sorts of misunderstanding is, because it comes into, because let's let's grasp the nettle of Van Wall now for the, this show. Okay, let's do that. A car brand. It's That's what it says in the regulations, a car brand. It does not say a road car brand, okay? What it also says is the final decision will be taken by the organisers. So in other words... You come up, you, you've got a set of regulations you must comply with, which includes either owning the brand or having approval to use that brand. Yes, I'm looking at you, Colin. Um, and beyond that, there's then another hurdle, which is the organisers have got to basically say, and by the way, you're invited, because never forget the FIWC is an invitation 
uh, process. There is a selection board for that. And unless you've ticked all the regulatory boxes and you've come forward with a program that they can have confidence in, the reality is they don't have to say yes. So what, yep. what you got to ask me about Van Wall? So, yeah, uh, Kevin Kemp uh, 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 has asked a question uh, saying there's not been a reason to be a Buy Collars fan for quite a while, um, but he loves to look at the van wall. And I could, mm. I could agree, agree with uh, Kevin. It, it look, it's a very good looking car. Um, what are the chances that we see that car on the grid at all next season? Right. OK, um, so to bring people up to date that are not aware of what's going on with the van wall. Um, so this is a car branded as a van wall by effectively what is morphed from the Bicolis team. And there's been an ongoing and still is an ongoing uh, dispute about who owns the Van Wall trademark. It's too long and too boring for me even to write down for Delhi Sports Car at the moment. But if you look back, more or less everything I've said in the past on DSC still applies. There is a, an active process underway at the moment in the European Union with a body called the EU IPO, the European Union um, Intellectual Property Office, which looks after trademark issues across the European Union. And there are two parties involved. It's a UK-based company um, that's, whose primary interest in the brand is in recreation of the 1958 World Championship Constructors winner. Um, so reproduction Formula One cars. And there's a company called PMC GmbH, which is a German outfit, uh, effectively, that is the core company behind Bicolis. Um, there is an EU trade, sorry, there is a UK trademark. There is a German trademark owned by those two parties. And you can guess which is which. Uh, there is an EU trademark, uh, which was owned by the UK party, has been challenged by PMC. And that challenge is being defended at the moment by the UK body. Uh, the next process so the next stage in that process comes forward in a couple of weeks time. Um, and I'm fully well aware of what evidence is on the table from both parties. can tell you that my understanding is correct, that parallel uh, applications for uh, the trademark to be protected in favour of PMC in both India and Australia have been rejected. Wow. Uh, and there is a worldwide trademark uh, application in play and I don't know the status of that so I'm not going to comment on that um, which would be for PMC worldwide here's the, the point though it all focuses on the EU process if PMC win their challenge and take over the EU IPO uh, registration everything else that's relevant is then activated and they're in good shape for 2023 if they lose then they lose an opportunity to register the trademark in the European Union. De facto, that then has an effect on uh, any member of the European Union IPO, uh, which includes, of course, Germany, uh, where a simple challenge, it, I feel, would remove that uh, German trademark. And if you've not got the trademark in the EU, De facto, you cannot have a worldwide trademark. So suffice it to say, a whole lot depends on a process that's underway at the moment in the European Union. So um, will we see them on the track in 2023? If they win, yes. If they don't, not as a van wall, no. 
it's a, it really is that simple. That simple, yeah. And you know, um, if Colin's listening, <laughs> Colin, I'm fully well aware of some fairly unpleasant things you've said to a variety of people about the things that have been written. You know where I am. Um, by all means, feel free to tell me what I've written that's wrong. But I think you'll find that there's not a single word I've written that is wrong on this front. Uh, from me to you, I hope your team does find a way forward. I hope we do see what is clearly a very pretty car um, coming forward and racing in the FIWC. There's no agenda other than the fact that it's got to meet the rules. It's as simple as that, as everybody else does. So that's where we are. They are the facts. Anybody uh, knows anything different to the facts as we laid out here? Um, it's not difficult to find me. Yeah, fair enough. Let's um, move on. We'll move on to uh, a few questions uh, about another challenger for LMDH and in hypercar, um, uh, Alpine. You mentioned Alpine yep. as one of the members uh, coming into the series. We got a question um, uh, from Matthew License and from George Allegretza. George so, Allegretza. Uh, by the way, the, this week's mangling of uh, questioners' names brought to you by Michael Zalavari. It's something I do very, very well. I've had a lot of practice mangling people's names on podcasts. Uh, anyway, back to the questions. Um, uh, revolving around Alpine and their yep. entry uh, to Hypercar, do you think we'll see them uh, try and do a round in 2023, similar to what we're expecting from Porsche at the end of this season? Um, and do, do we think that uh, Andretti Alpine in 2024 thing, is that is that a, a thing that's going to be happening? Is that wrapped up in Andretti's F1 ambitions? or is is it a standalone thing? Uh, well, I'd be pretty clearly for the Lamborghini and for the Alpine, things are a little further into the long grass, uh, metaphorically speaking. I see no reason why they, if they're ready, they shouldn't ask for the opportunity to uh, to race. By then, of course, they'll be with within regulation. And by the way, that's another good reason to actually have a process. Uh, as they've changed it to allow the potential, I'm not sure we're going to see the actuality of Porsche at Bahrain, uh, but the potential for um, an LMDH manufacturer to come forward, I think that would be a universally positive thing for the programme, for the sport, for the interest. All of those things are good. Um, I've zero doubt it's going to be a very credible effort. Uh, on the Andretti front, it's rather more... MPs Bailiwick, but they've made it pretty clear that they're talking to Alpine. I'm still not clear as to how and why that is relevant in IMSA racing, since Alpine currently don't sell cars in North America. So what we don't yet know is exactly how that's going to show itself. Uh, is that going to be an Alpine? Is it going to be some kind of Nissan brand, um, you know, which is sold in the United States? But that that one needs a little bit more attention. I know MP's got a, a mind to lock Michael Andretti into a small cupboard and beat the truth out of him. Um, <laughs> that'll, that'll I'd love to well. watch that. <laughs> that would be a pay to you want to go for. But the answer is <laughs> positive. Uh, Orica, of course, have got a great reputation for bringing highly competitive cars um, to the track. And by the way, uh, we shouldn't forget either that they are building the Ferrari 296s as well in their, uh, their growing industrial complex uh, just outside Port Ricard. So uh, every reason to be positive about that. Last conversation I had with anybody at Alpine uh, made it very clear their ambitions on the customer front as well. And obviously the Andretti side of things, 
that may well be more kind of semi-factory but that's the other part of this kind of christmas present we've not yet unwrapped is who's going to have the uh, the opportunity to sell customer cars and when and in what quantities and at what cost we know what a porsche costs it's 2.9 million euros my guess is for the lmdhs that might well be pretty much top end um we know that jim glickenhaus will sell you sell you one of his cars 2.5 million by the way um so you're looking to save do you know of any other lmdh or uh hypercar um manufacturers that are looking to sell customer cars lamborghini most certainly will there's no doubt in my mind lamborghini will be looking to sell customer cars that's that's clearly part of their modus operandi um zero doubt about that i think the honest answer is that they probably all will eventually. Uh, the, the, the outlier at the moment is Acura. Uh, not a great deal of understanding of what the, the business proposal is there. Um, there is, as is always the case with, uh, with Acura, Honda, HPD, there's a division of responsibility um, across the planet for those associated brands. And I think that one's gonna come out the wash. But that I think we'll find more out of uh, about that as they get a handle on their their core program. That clearly is the priority, and that's correct. Uh, certainly not expecting to see one of those cars in WEC in 2023. Beyond that, I'd sort of be surprised. I know there's been conversations, but it's really been conversations about conversations, not here's the money. Uh, yeah. I think what people have been trying to find out at the moment is how much will you pay us to run your car. Um, I think the answer in the most for the most part there has been huh? um, <laughs> but uh, that's not going to happen but it's a different question when you get into the customer marketplace uh that covers off christopher alfelby's question quite nicely so thank you very much uh christopher um i've got a, another question from matt license that i i really really liked uh he was thinking about the numbers of how many cars that are going to be in hypercar and you've already said yep. there's double digit in both uh, yep. WEC and IMSA. Uh, uh, the question is, do you think the large size will take away from the traffic aspect of endurance racing with a smaller GT class, particularly in the WEC next year where it's GTM uh, and uh, maybe a reduction in LMP2 entries as well? It's a fair question. I mean, what we've seen so far is, I think, quite encouraging. It is tougher for the hypercars to get by traffic. It's as simple as that. When we get into 2023, 2024 maybe, I think is a better comparison here. You could reasonably expect in a BOP top class that's heavily populated and a BOP GT class, which we would expect to be a pretty reasonable number of cars, that traffic will come together in clumps and packs. And that's something different again. And to me, traffic and the way in which that impacts upon a race is one of the truly special parts of this sport because you can get away um, and you can put 15, 20 seconds on uh, a car, but it's more likely to be four or five seconds on a car that comes down to one second through traffic and then it's game on and then I get my excited trousers back on again. <laughs> and, uh, so it's, to me, that's part of the game that we're going to have to be 
on our toes to explain to people, to promote what's coming here. Look how excited people get about overtaking in other formulae. Um, DRS in uh, Formula One. Don't, 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 Graham. Don't, don't go <laughs> so this, is, this is the part of the podcast where Graham gets angry about F1. Uh, if I'm, not, I'm not angry about it. It depresses me. Um, oh, okay. It's, let, let's have 30 seconds on that, and then I'll put it in the drawer that will never be reopened, which is technologically, Formula One should be and is the pinnacle. Yep. Other than the fact they've not got renewable fuel, and we do. Sorry, that's... Uh, what? I didn't quite catch that. Other than the fact they've got yeah, yeah, renewable <laughs> fuel. Right, so... And it should be. And in terms of the quality of the teams and the drivers and the budgets and the activation, and all of that, it should be, and for the most part is, right up there. It strikes me that they should see the need for DRS's failure. That's, I think, what I'm going for here. It is a very false, gimmicky part of what should be a top quality professional show. It effectively displays the fact that these astonishing cars and drivers are not capable of enough competition without effectively outside assistance now to me and okay people will say oh yeah but you've got to get within a second yes you've got to get within a second and then effectively once you've got within a second there's no real defense and that strikes me as being false i don't want that i was never keen when we had that brief window of time where they talked about um adjustable aero in wc i always thought that was going to be a mistake i think we're going to see something altogether different something altogether better which is clumps packs of cars competing wheel to wheel with themselves and then with the challenge of what traffic will bring and that that does excite me i think we can afford to give ourselves the leeway to say a bit of a hashtag wait and see about this one rather than getting excited about what might be a downer the the answer here is we don't yet know how these cars are going to race together, either in a class or between those classes. Um, but I think we've got every reason to be encouraged about it. Do you think maybe having those clumps uh, more frequently is going to make driving in traffic a little more dangerous? So we're going to see more class contact between classes? Because that's something we haven't really seen for a little while. No, we haven't. And uh, you know, I think the fact that the, the, um, the GTs are going to be only pro-am possibly increases that risk. But here's the point. Professional drivers have got two jobs, three jobs. Go fast. Go consistently fast. Don't cock it up. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. You know, ultimately, if you want to wear the mantle of being I'm a top class quality factory driver, it is a matter of assessing and dealing with risk. OK, and traffic is a risk. How you deal with that traffic is down to you as the individual. And, you know, we talk about people being amazing through traffic, et cetera, et cetera. Great. Yes. <laughs> I mean, honestly, yeah. that that fills me with excitement. What they can't do is bulldoze the way through it. 
because that's not what the rules allow them to do. But they've got to deal with that risk. What do I think? I think um, we're going to hear the word spotter a lot more coming forward at a number of places. There is going to be the, you know, we already do know, having talked to a, a number of people in sports car racing, that there will be interest if, you know, if they're in extremists and approaching traffic and in a battle or in a kind of uh, position where they're being closed or challenged from uh, from behind by another competitor in their class, they will want to find out who's in the next car. Is it the app? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's completely correct because it does give you that difference between if you're closing in on, let's say, I was going to say Jimmy Bruni, but Jimmy will chop you as soon as look at you. But, <laughs> but you know, God bless you, Jimmy. I love you dearly. But they they know that the task is different. They know where these guys are going to have their kind of their, their, their eyes, eyes open. on. Yeah. Um, so I think we can afford to be excited about that. I think that's that's part of what excites me about this. Looking beyond just the sheer numbers and who's coming and in what. What actually excites me increasingly is the prospects of the competition that comes with that. And that's, yeah. by the way, where I get, I wouldn't say cross, really bored with the purists that say the what ifs. The, but what if we had this? and what, we've, had, we've tried that game. It doesn't work. And it's not going to work in the current prospects. We've got a rule set that people are truly excited about. And the people that are truly excited about it are the people who are prepared to spend the money. Let's yep. see how that goes, shall we? And yep. if that turns out to be rubbish, then you can tell me I'm wrong and I'll quietly retire. But you know what? I'm not going to be wrong. It is going to be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can think some of the favorite parts of watching sports car racing is watching battles go through battles. Um, yes. It's just, a, just the European Le Mans series race uh, at Monza where we had, I think it was three or four P2 cars. Yep. trying to pass their way through three or four GT cars. And yep. I think they were running each other off the road at some point. That's that's the sort of stuff that gets me it's, excited as well. Uh, there you go. And that's that realistically is the kind of prospect you're going to get. Mm. P2 cars. It comes back, doesn't it, to this point about, um, uh, about balance of performance. And it's a point worth making, which is balance of performance defines one thing, which is the maximum potential performance you can get out of a package that's what it defines they're looking at pure numbers and they're saying right okay this is what we think should be the potential performance of those cars how close you get to that depends on the team and their development and the drivers okay and if you think that's rubbish look at lmp2 okay let's turn around on its head the criticism that comes back to a tedious degree it's formula orica OK, right. You're right. OK, it is Formula Orica. Every team in the uh, European Le Mans series has got an Orica and have all applied the same rules. And we've got the two subclasses. We've got LMP2 Pro-Am with a bronze and we've got LMP2 where you don't have to have a bronze. You have to have a silver. OK, you've watched those races, Michael. How close those cars run? Three or four of them run really close. And then you've got others yeah. that are a bit further back. What's making that difference? That's not even BOP. That's a spec car. And they're still running, you know, with great competition at one level. But also there are other teams that know that their engineering resources and prowess needs to take a leap up to get there. Look at someone like Panis Racing. Yeah, who, absolutely. With with relatively limited resources, have climbed that ladder 
clawed their way up there over the last two or three years and now really in contention. And that's because they've got awesome people in the garage on the pit wall and they've got a really good driver lineup that is squeezing the very best out of that prospect. I think if if you're looking for a marker of what hypercar should be, look at LMP2 right now. And LMP2 is awesome. LMP2 is awesome. But but the, the key here is balance of performance defines what you can do. Whether or not you achieve that is up to you. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. And I can't wait to see those those battles in traffic. Oh, that's oh, awesome. oh, oh, by the way, before we forget, the same will apply today to the Spa 24 Hours. It's the same thing. Balance of performance defines what those cars can do. How close they get to that maximum level of performance is down to the choices they make in setup uh, for the race and the choices that those drivers make while they're out on track. Do we want to talk a little bit about the Spa 24 uh, then, yeah. Graham? Um, so we've got a question from Right Turn Lover, uh, someone I'm uh, very familiar with on Twitter. Um, just asking a few process questions about uh, about Lamar. Uh, sorry, about the Spa 24. Um, yeah. Has the the time accounting become less important? Has team excellence become more important? The driver grading compo uh, combinations. Uh, what what's what's going on for a first time watcher of the Spa 24? What are we going to expect to see? Uh, I think you're going to expect to see what we always do see, which is um, pack racing lunacy. Uh, it's, it, to my mind, the way in which the the progression of rules has impacted that race is it's actually a very American race now. If you if you, it's defined by um, quite a lot of caution periods because there's lunacy all around there, which basically means that you're going to get close racing throughout the race. It's almost designed that you're going to get as close a finish as possible. And that's not a bad thing in any way, shape or form. But to my mind, I've said it before, over-regulated in terms of it effectively is 24 sprint races. Uh, so does excellence count? It does, but it counts more in not making mistakes than a difference you can make in pit lane. Of course, a driver can make a difference. Never let it be said that they, they can't. But what they can't do now um, is effectively, if you can't get a lap and you can't, um, yeah. yeah. So you are going to see, you know, we're going to be waking up at seven, eight o'clock tomorrow morning and there still should be multiple, multiple cars on the lead lap. And that's great. You know, that's great. Um, it's less pure than it used to be. But then again, do you want to see a 24 hour race being won by a car by seven laps? I've been at those races and I'll tell you right now, they can be pretty dull um, mm. for the prospect of you, you tend to be looking for other things to write about and talk about. Uh, so you're not going to get that. And that's a good thing in terms of the entertainment. Uh, if you're a racing purist, you're going to have to look elsewhere for your entertainment. It's as simple as that. Um, what can you what difference can you make? It comes down to speed of everything, consistency in everything. That means driving, strategy, pit routine, and don't mess it up. It really does come down to that. It's you're not going to be able to get a second, two seconds, three seconds on a pit stop because it doesn't allow you to do that. It is going to be when you choose to have that technical stop for the brake change, for instance. It's choosing the right time to do those things. Um, but you know, are you going to find a team making a huge difference on strategy? Tragically, no, you're not. 
Okay, it's as simple as that. For me, I'm kind of a semi-purist. I do still do want to see that. Uh, but it comes down to don't make any mistakes on pit lane, on the pit wall or in traffic and be in good shape to challenge when you're getting into the final couple of hours of that race. And little doubt in my mind, we're likely again to see a very close finish. And yeah. I think that's a good thing. It, mm. it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a joy to me that our major 24-hour races, our major endurance races are all very, very different. When you choose to follow the Spa 24 hours, you're choosing to follow something that is fundamentally different from Daytona, from the Nürburgring, um, from, for that matter, the Bathurst 12 hour, mm, and absolutely. fundamentally different from Le Mans. And that's a good thing. It's not just a 24 hour race, it's the Spa 24 hours. You know, it's a single uh, spec of car, albeit divided into classes with drivers of differing gradings. But we've got 23 cars in the top class. We've got silver cup cars that will be there and thereabouts with a number got of gold those. cup as well. Gold, yeah, cup. gold cup as well. And that, that, by the way, that's uh, that's one of the things that's going to be confusing of the next year, where the changes announced by by SRO yesterday will reverse that. So gold cup will become the the higher graded, if you like, as it should be really against silver cup. Um, so we're going to see a change there, which will require people to have a better reset. But there's going to be cars that are going to be in the mix. There's going to be some hero efforts, I'm sure, early in the race. It's going to keep lower class cars, if you like, in the mix with the top cars for quite a while. And that's good. What am I looking forward to? Quite a lot of wheel banging action, really. Can I answer that question as well? Of course. I'm gonna. I'm looking forward to the rain that's uh, predicted to hit Spa-Francorchamps at about 2 p.m. tomorrow. Lovely. Well, that's uh, that'll sort the. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, we can, I mean, we're not going to say that because Ooh, we've got some top. awesome women drivers, and that's true. You know, we've got Samantha Tan, and we've got the the Iron Dames, who I expect to show very well indeed. And you know, it. But again, that's something it throws at you, and there, that's that is probably the one factor where you can make a fundamental difference just by being awesome and. Yep. Or lucky, or both. Um, uh, and for me, again, that's another reason why Spa and the Nurburgring in particular just stand out because they're factors that can come and bite on the backside or hand the potential for a big advantage to you um, without you doing anything other than just being clean out on track. Yeah, and, and that's the thing as well. With such a large grid, you really need... We say this about endurance racing all the time, or at least I do. Uh, you've got to buy your ticket to the last section of the race. And I think Spa maybe makes that a little more formulaic to get to that point because of the way that the regulations are set up with the driver times and the pit stop regulations. You really can't make a mistake because as soon as you're off the lead lap, you're completely gone. But if you are in the lead lap and you yep. do get to two hours remaining... And the rain comes down, it's anyone's game at that point. Yeah, certainly is. There's another interesting question on the Spa 24 hours. It comes from Nicholas Kohut. Do you want to read me that one? Sure. Um, does the lack of special liveries from WRT and the Audi stable for Spa okay. indicate a split between WRT and Audi is imminent? There's a far, far bigger clue on that front. So anybody that knows uh, Vincent Voss will know he's the king of bling. Um, and uh, Vincent always wears four rings. And ah. That, uh, you'll find that he's not wearing four rings. He's wearing fewer than four. And the other thing that indicates 
that uh, rather ironically, as you're about to hear, that uh, he's about to make a change is that I've heard that he doesn't look both ways before running out the garage. So it just goes straight into pedestrian traffic without a care of the world. No, of course it doesn't. <laughs> so the, the answer is, um, look, do we think the WRT is edging closer to that 2024 WC deal with BMW? They're absolutely in the mix for that. OK, um, I, I keep getting, keep getting notes, questions, messages from people asking, where is this link between WRT and Lamborghini come from? I have absolutely no idea who has said that, written it, whatever. I do know that Vonson has, has constantly repeated that it's not, never been a link between the two parties. Um, look, they clearly their target number one is BMW. I know they have competition in that fight. I know there's there's some interesting other prospects that are out there on the table. Um, it's fair to say that they've got a, a very good hand to play uh, in that. Expect to see them back in P2 uh, next season. Will they be making the switch? Possibly, probably. Possibly, probably. Uh, a question from me then. Uh, does the fact that we haven't seen Audi's next GT3 offering play into this decision at all? Uh, no, I, th I think that's a bit different. I mean, in terms of what's going to happen with... You know, is it going to be a replacement for the R8? Is it going to be a replacement eventually for the Huracan? Um, you know, obviously associated car. That's all still going to play out as well. Those things I think we'll be hearing more of in the next six to eight months. Okay. So, you know, there's there's a lot going on at the moment in terms of, you know, I'm sure re uh, read the stories about the prospects for Formula One for Porsche and Audi, and then we've got the the further spanner in the works, which is the management changes at uh, Volkswagen Audi Group, and whether or not that throws any of that into doubt. You know, honestly, so many moving parts, and the world is moving very quickly. Things can change dramatically uh, quicker than you can possibly imagine. Either way, what we we fall back onto here is there's there is clearly a very healthy customer base for both the prototype and the GT side of things in motorsport right now, any major manufacturer will be considering options moving forward on the basis of what they can do commercially. That's what it comes yeah. down to. It's not just the uh, the optics of the technology behind it here. Branding has a part to play. And would you give up an entire marketplace that is currently producing profits if you've got any uh, also any option to continue well, of course you wouldn't that's hmm. what's going to define it it's whether or not there's a commercial opportunity and a platform to build it on yeah especially if you're the you know top manufacturer of the how many gt3 cars have been racing so far this year Did you say 326 i think it's 305 or 315 can't remember the actual number but yeah, uh, it's you're... a spectacular number Absolutely. Um, you mentioned uh, Porsche and Audi looking at Formula One. We've got a question from Ollie Yu asking, with Porsche's reported buy, buy into the Red Bull racing team uh, for Formula mm -hmm. One, how will that affect their LMDH project um, for the next few years? They'll immediately cancel it and we won't be seeing Porsche in the FIWEC. No. Or the no, of course not. So the answer is they're committed to the LMDH program. Um, look, what do we know moving forward? Well, look, if you can make that commercially sustainable, 
then there's no reason why that shouldn't continue beyond its current lifespan. But beyond that, there are going to be a pretty large number of customer cars coming forward the next two or three years. Two cars apiece for IMSA Weather Tech Sports Cars Championship and the FIWC available for next year. Understand that the same additional number, two, two more apiece, would be made available for the year after that. Look, Porsche didn't always race as a factory team. You know, Porsche um, entrusted their de facto works efforts for many years to some pretty awesome teams, some of whom went on to have quite a lot of success looking at you, Team Yoast. You know, so again, we don't know is the straight answer, but I'm certainly not going to get upset about the prospect of only two or three years with a Porsche factory team. This is very different from the 919, fundamentally yeah. different from the 919. Let's let's pause while we think of how many privateers ever run a 919 hybrid. That's exactly. how many. Okay. Exactly. We've already got publicly confirmed two cars confirmed. JDC Miller in America, uh, Hertz team uh, Jota in Europe. Uh, Marshall's already written about the AJ Foyt's uh, racing branded effort coming to uh, IMSA. I'm aware of at least one potential prospect coming forward for 2023 uh, in the FIWEC. Um, and there's more that are keen to talk to them about 2024. Not going to get depressed about it. Not going to see this as a threat. I see this as an opportunity. And by the way, if you can get to the stage where the core of your grid are very high level operating commercially backed as the Jota effort certainly is privateer teams, that de-risks the very thing that you seem to be concerned about. Yeah, absolutely. Because the customers who want to be there are the ones who are there. And that's exactly what we want. And by the way, I can tell you right now that I would expect any time a privateer team in the WEC or for that matter uh, in IMSA has a good result, that it'll be a Porsche press release that lands in my inbox saying, Great rate of victory for Porsche. Yeah. You know, it's something they, they value. That's Absolutely they right. Uh, by the way, the um, number is 315 GT3 cars. I've 315. Just checked it. Uh, so for, for clarity, by the way, uh, 45 of which raced in North America, 212 in Europe, and 58 in Asia and Oceania. There you go. That's, that's a pretty... That was 2020, it's 2022 so far. And that, wow. that, that likely, by the way, doesn't include a number of cars that are racing in... Uh, smaller formula. For instance, I'm looking here, doesn't include brick car, for instance. So it's more than that. There you go. That's that's still an incredible number it's of an amazing uh, number. cars. Um, I want to stay in F1-related area for a moment because I, I have it on good authority that not, not just last week, uh, you guys at Twisk uh, regarded, suggested that Sebastian Vettel might give up on Formula One and start looking towards sports cars. And we've got a number of questions about that. And since then, of course, yes, you're about to say something. Well, no, tell us what, what, what Sebastian done this week. So, so Sebastian, uh, very big news. He started a social media account. He got an Instagram. Um, and the first post that he put on that was he's retiring from Formula One. <laughs> and the last. Um, that, that is such a power well, move. Well, look, first things first, what we actually said well, is an answer to a question who might kind of come our way. And I suggested I thought Sebastian Vettel would be a great mix. I think he's a hugely intelligent, 
um, voice and presence in the Formula One paddock. Um, he's a student of history of sport. We know there was a famous press conference um, a couple of three years ago, I think, when Fernando Alonso was with us in uh, at Le Mans, where he was asking how Le Mans had gone in the press conference, yeah. Yeah. which I thought was very cool of him. Um, I think I'd be disappointed if his phone hadn't rung, if it hasn't already, and whoever that might be, whether or not it's Porsche, whether or not, whoever it is, yeah. uh, he'd be extremely welcome in this paddock. And I think he'd, he'd like Fernando Alonso, like Mark Webber and others, uh, Nico Hulkenberg before him, uh, would be great ambassadors for the refreshing difference in our paddocks compared to their paddocks. And I think that's part of it is we've seen a lot of really talented guys who never really got the break they deserved in Formula One, including Sebuemi, including Kaznakajima, including Alan McNish, by the way, um, come and do astonishing thing in, things in sports cars. I'm not going to be that guy that talks about we've got the better drivers, they've got the better drivers. The reality is, if someone like a Lewis Hamilton, a Max Verstappen, a Sebastian Vettel got into one of these cars, they'll make it metaphorically fly. No doubt whatsoever about that. They are awesome uh, you know, and spectacular professionals and will get the very best they possibly can out of any machinery that's put in front of them. And that should be welcomed. It should be welcomed, by the way, by literally everybody, including Formula One. Yeah, because I agree with that. Uh, you know, it's again it, the one aspect of the Sebastian Vettel um, retirement thing that depresses me is retiring from Formula One. Okay, and the way in which that's then reported by the huge media core that follows that circus is retiring from motorsport. He's not said he's retiring from motorsport. Okay, and by the way, please, guys. If you don't want people to be cynical about what it is you do, stop this. Stop this bullshit. OK, it is part of the same sport. We've got value. We've got that heritage. We're feeding talent into that pool as well as taking talent from that pool. And let's you know, I've been guilty of it in the past, but you know, a little bit of bear baiting. But I want to hear more of it. We, we, we had um, um, Will Buxton at uh, Le Mans a couple of years ago. It's for his first time. He came into the booth with Martin Haven and with myself and was doing something uh, for TV. And, you know, skills had fallen from his eyes, as yeah, well. they would for very many of the, the guys involved in that. And I just want to hear a bit less cynicism, a bit less elitism about it. And then maybe we can all be friends, you know. But I want to hear much, much more from that paddock. Uh, particularly when you've got so many more names being associated, whether it's the brands, whether or not it's the drivers, the sponsors. I want to hear a bit more appreciation of the fact that it doesn't begin and end with their ludicrous calendar, uh, their 20 drivers, their 20 cars, because that's, to be blunt, that is disrespectful to the rest of what is an awesome sport, an awesome industry that genuinely doesn't operate like that. Uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, that, that we do care about each other. I've, I've woken up this morning to news that you know a friend of mine was badly hurt yesterday in a testing accident uh, here in the UK, and I've watched the social media to his partner, who's also involved 
in the sport. And there's nothing other than absolute love going in their direction. In extremis, we can do it. OK, let's just make this. Let's I'd love to hear people in Formula One pressurizing, for instance, BBC online to do more about motorsport in the wider arena. I don't expect the European Le Mans series to be reported on there, but it would be nice to see success, particularly British success, reported regularly on the BBC uh, and not just in a top class either. It would be nice to see an acknowledgement that the awesomeness of our sport goes way deeper than whether or not Lewis Hamilton, George Russell and Nando Norris has finished in the top eight. Uh, yeah, I guess it's a bit of a, a sort of a focal point of uh, where the motorsport eyes fit because Formula One really is the only contemporary motorsport. I mean, it's different for different regions. So, for example, in Australia, a lot of our focus is on supercars. But then again, we only hear about other motorsports when supercars people are involved. Like the only reason that popular media in Australia reported on Le Mans was because Van Gisbergen was racing a GTE pro car. So there you go. I'd love, I, yeah, I'd love to see just a, a wider speckling of uh, interest in, in motorsports because yeah, as we've said, it's awesome. Um, um, but before we move on, by the way, just want to quickly back because something I've just noticed and I didn't notice on the, uh, the SRO slide. You talked earlier about Mercedes-Benz and Le Mans. Yes. That 315 cars, by the way, um, the car that's had most racing worldwide was Mercedes-Benz. Okay. Yeah. That was, I, I would have expected it to be Audi, truth be told. Uh, Audi 50 cars, second. Uh, Mercedes-Benz 63 GT3 cars racing worldwide uh, in 2022. 42 is third, and that's Lamborghini, 39 Porsches, 34 Ferraris. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Um, just want to finish up on, on Vettel. Uh, a few specific questions that people had. Um, Otter asks, uh, did your comments last week push him over the edge to retire? Yeah, from uh, he was on the phone saying thank you <laughs> for that. No, of course not. I mean, look, it was, it's uh, an accident of, you know, it's, 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 it is. Is it better to be lucky to, than good? It's hard. Yes, it's heartening <laughs> to hear two things. One, that his public statement, of course, referenced his family, um, lived up to his reputation. I've never met Seb Vettel. I have a feeling I'd like him. Um, the second thing was that the door is open to other things, and that I do like uh, because I think that shows exactly what I would want to see from someone who can be an ambassador for the wider sport. Um, there's so many guys, and Alex Vert's another one that, you know, um, was a fan of sports cars before he got involved in uh, in Formula One. And I know, you know, talked to a lot of people. I've talked to him about talking to those people about it and uh, offering opportunities to some of the guys struggling to get or to stay on the greasy pole. Uh, there are other opportunities beyond that. And I, it, it's the kind of slightly socialist view, if you like, that I just want this to be a sport that helps itself yeah. to get the window on the world. And that we've not just got, you know, 10 teams and whoever their sponsors are basically saying, you can't have that window on the world because that's ours. Stop it. Because actually, it helps everybody. Yeah, it really does. And I, I've sort of experienced that firsthand. There's a few questions as well. Stuart Hart asking, um, 
it, should we see more star power from these hypercars teams trying to attract Formula One drivers? Um, Doogie Davis asking, is there a possibility for Vettel to end up back with Ferrari? And I mean, you know, only a few years ago when Alonso came across from Formula One into Toyota, when Jensen Button came across and did those races for SMP, yep. There was a buzz around the communities that I was involved in because all of a sudden you had fans of these drivers, which is something that, you know, sports car racing doesn't necessarily have specific fans of specific drivers, that is, coming across and saying, this driver that I'm super interested in is racing in this race. How do I keep track? Right. Well, OK, and- here's here's a different way of looking at it. Is there a possibility they may go to factory teams? There's a possibility. I think it's possibly less likely let's go back and think about those privateers again mm. privateers are coming forward with real commercial sponsorship they will want to stand out against factory teams running the same car how do you do that you do that by the drivers you've got yeah now would hertz say decide to put the mega bucks behind getting a Sebastian Vettel or similar, and there's not that many people similar to Sebastian Vettel into their car. Well, why wouldn't they? Look at what's happened with GT World Challenge and Valentino Rossi. Look at that, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Valentino is not competitive in that car, but he is putting thousands on the gate. Yes, of course, there's something in in that and in particular if you manage to do that in a situation where with someone like a mark weber or fernando alonso they actually are competitive so the reality here is why wouldn't you yeah why would you not pick up the yeah you yes of course you'd be looking at the the will stevens the harry tinknells the ricky taylors the um felipe albuquerque's the antonio felix de costas of course you would they're all awesome. And sorry if I've not name-checked you. It doesn't mean you're less awesome. It just means I'm trying to develop to a, a certain point rather than fill this with names. But if you've got someone with that same level of awesome talent that also brings more, mm. well, why wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, l- looking back, uh, when Lando Norris ra- uh, raced at uh, Daytona with the United team, that yep. Brought in a great big load of Formula One friends who are fans of Lando Norris specifically to watch that event. Uh, Jimmy but Johnson yeah. as well has that same sort of of power in in the states yeah, when he okay. raced at Daytona. It's it, it it is that, and I I I hope we're going to see more of that as we move forward. Okay, again, what Zach Brown did with Fernando Alonso changed a lot of people's minds in a very good way, and we've got reason to think uh, thank Zach for that. What's happened with Valentino Rossi, I'm sure, has turned people's heads. And I think they'll now be thinking, hang on a minute, are we missing a trick here? Okay. And again, the opportunity when you've got a name like Sebastian Vettel potentially available, of course it's going to have people thinking, you know, something that was not possible is now possible. Okay. It's that. And I, I hope it's start of another positive strand. It's again more, isn't it? More positivity. As someone was saying in one of the questions earlier, all the news is positive. All the opportunities are positive. All the options are positive, with one or two exceptions about questions whether or not Team A that's never yet raced will continue. Yes, they will. (laughs) So let's see how that one goes. Well, we've got about 10 minutes more. We want to pick out another couple? 
Um, I think it would be good then to talk a bit more SRO, um, seeing as we saw the reveal of the Maserati GT2 this yep. week as well. Um, uh, Stephen Gate asks, uh, being a huge Brabham fan, he's been mm-hmm. watching the GT2 series, and we've got champion uh, cars in that championship now from Audi, KTM, Porsche, Mercedes, Lamborghini, Brabham, and now Maserati. Is This is gaining a lot of momentum now. Is this going to be the next amateur sort of focused GT class? What, what do you well, think will be the future? Well, the other big news from SRO was that their new AM class for the IGTC will be for GT2 cars. Uh, so you will be seeing GT2 cars at Bathurst 12 hours, for instance, um, which is great news. They've been victims of circumstance. GT2 was effectively launched into the pandemic. And yeah. that, of course, has been pretty much a disaster for the class and they've been running around with a dozen or so cars cars are awesome the cars look fantastic they look amazing uh the performance levels for an amateur driver are amazing because they're focused more on power and less on aero so effectively you know i as famously someone with no talent and no fear it's easier for me to put my foot down all the way than it is to use the aerodynamics of a car in a turn um because whilst most of me is fat, my neck isn't, okay? <laughs> so it's it, it's that. they've. It's, uh, I think, an intelligent response to what they want to see. And again, not for the first time, Stefan Rattel referencing a gradual um, recovery in the AM class for uh, SRO. And that's a good thing. Yes, it's great to have the Maserati brand. And by the way, um, I think that pretty much does... Uh, focus in on the fact that we're not going to see a Maserati hypercar. Uh, They are focused on Formula E. They're focused on uh, GT2 for the moment, at least. And they're focused on their track only hypercar, super sports car, the Project 24. So we've now got what their interim motorsports offering is going to be. Will there be a one make car? Probably the honest answer let's wait and see what kind of comes out of that but it's good news that we've got a brand like that Brabham too um, involved in that it's good that they've got an outlet for that car because it's a stunning piece of kit um does gt2 have a bright future i think it has a brighter future than it's currently got not least because i think the options for people to race in gt2 with the igtc races are now more attractive so there will be a gt2 class at the spa 24 hours next year for instance um, will it dominate? Not yet. Um, I think any statement that is made that is dismissive of GT2 now will be one of those clips you want to keep. Because <laughs> in five, seven, ten years' time, I think that will not have aged well. But I think it will take a while. Okay. Uh, another question on uh, oh, this oh, week. Sorry, I was going to go one other thing to add, by the way. Okay, is, sorry. Which is... Um, you should be sorry because it was me just adding something. It's not been said, but I happen to think that GT2 might be where we see um, some electrification at some point in the. I think that might be where we see it first. Okay. If yeah. Th- if you think about that, the theory behind those cars, it's about power. It's not about aero. Yep. It, it sort of makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, and because the the weight penalty, if you're talking about just amateur drivers or predominantly amateur drivers, is then much less of an issue. 
I I think that would be a sensible assumption that the in that the the kind of the medium term future for GT2 might be where you see a customer car offering that includes some kind of hybridization. There you go. That would be very interesting to see, and I'll keep eyes on that with bated breath. Uh, John Schultz asks, uh, seeing the Maserati MC12 at Spa this weekend got me thinking, uh, what is your favorite GT1 memory from the GT1, cool. the American Le Mans series, Le Mans? Um, I got to say just quickly before you answer, it has been really cool seeing those cars out on track again, particularly yep. the Maseratis um, and some of the old uh, GT2 Porsches, my favorite uh, cars, those old Porsche GT2s with the air intakes in the wings. I think they're awesome. Well, um, the, 911 but, G, the 911 GT2s for late 90s cars. I love cars. The, those yep. 90s cars. Yeah, I oh, love yeah. them. I, they're bonkers. They're, they're so good. Um, yeah, have you ever seen the road car version of it? Not in per- I've seen plenty oh, of pictures. No, 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 no. I mean, I've seen them. One passed me on a German autobahn back in oh. the day doing about 700 miles an hour, I think. It certainly <laughs> felt like that. But there's something about it, the, the car. It just doesn't look, when you look at it, of course, it's built to be fast. It looks <clears throat> like it's going to be fast. But there seem to be so many reasons why it shouldn't be. It's quite yeah. a bulky thing. But it does look. A little bit like someone's thrown a perfectly sculpted ball down the road. Um, it's it, best memories of it. Winglets and everything everywhere. Um, the battles at Le Mans, on and off track, between Corvette and Aston Martin were fantastic. The regular, the two crews pushing their cars to the grid and running while they were doing it to try to win that little battle was part <laughs> of it. Um, George Howard Chapel, uh, having suffered back trouble at test day, I think it was. It was test day. Coming uh, and having to go home in someone else's car and left his company DB9 in the car park. Coming back to it, stick it up as a Corvette. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was brilliant. cool. Now, that, that's the kind of latter era of GT1. You'll, you'll note, by the way, I've not referenced the uh, the Maserati. I love those cars now. Was never a fan in the day. Ooh. Something about the car. Didn't like it in the day. It always felt a bit clinical to me. But my introduction professionally to the sport came in the earlier edition of GT1 with the original short tail McLarens, the F40s, the Lotus Esprits, and then obviously into that rapid fire development that killed it. You know, yeah. the GT1s, the Lotus Elises, the Panos the Mercedes, and then it just got crazy, you know, Totus and the, the Nissans. Um, my memory, uh, it's the defining memory, was 1995 at Le Mans, following the, um, pro, pro, following the, the progress of the Harrods McLaren with my then very young son. Uh, that was the car we chose, and we pretty clearly uh, quickly realised in the morning the car was struggling with gearbox uh, issues, and just willing that car home and, you know, willing it to uh, the podium finish that it got, uh, that will live with me forever. It was a very special time for me in family terms. It was a very special time for me in sporting terms. And the passion that that built basically are the reason we're speaking today. That's it. You've referenced that story to me before. That was your first introduction 95. to Lamar yeah it was 95 my son wanted at seven years old to go and see the McLaren's race at Le Mans and we did 
we went on the bus and we did and we did didn't do it the following year that's one bit of my sequence i've missed uh, so i didn't go in 96 but i've been every year since and i've worked every year since 2001 wow. uh, so by 2001 i was writing thank you so much malcolm cracknell and by 0506 and thanks john hindoff um i was contributing at least to radio Le Mans, and that became a significantly bigger part of my Le Mans. and then how many years ago did some tv in those days with with john we did some live itv stuff um with John during a couple of those years. And then is it three years, four years now, uh, as, you know, switching from radio to do the uh, the TV and now the wet TV and Eurosport feed. And it is one of the joys of my life. I, I absolutely adore it. It's it is a hell of a week, um, but uh, I love it more than words can say. And GT1 is the reason that happened. So thank you. Patrick, Peter, Jürgen Bart and Stefan Mattel, um, who saved the race, lest, lest we forget. And thank you to that car and, you know, the still very happy memories that it, it brings. Brilliant. I think that is a very nice and wholesome point to end off on. Graham. It is indeed. I can say thank you so much, by the way. First, of course, to Daniel Summersgill again for bringing together these questions in good order for us. Thanks to everybody that contributed um, to uh, the questions this week excellent stuff again thank you very much to you michael um from down under for helping at late notice with this edition of the weekend sports cars again brought to you by cooper tires by the justice brothers and by, Co uh, by cooper by uh, torontomotorsports.com marshall pro we hope will be back with us next week um when we'll be talking amongst other things about uh, the return for IMSA with Road America and lots to talk about I'm sure there in terms of lots of announcements to come from the state of the series with John Doonan I've been Graham Goodwin in the UK Michael has been Michael from Down Under this has been the Weekend Sports Cars part of the Marshall Pruitt uh, podcast thanks so much for being with us we will see you next week <laughs>